And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon. On the other side of midnight, on an ever-spinning globe, with some 7 billion people. We're in something like 190 countries, and you never know who's listening, so keep it clean. You know, if you want to call in the show in the third hour, tonight's going to be a really good time to, to call in. First of all, let me, let me take an aside for a moment here and apologize profusely for last night. It was really a concatenation of really bad things. What was that? Uh, what was that movie with um, Steve Martin, uh, or I forget who? Something about the very bad luck with Herman Lemonetter or something. Anyway, last night everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and so finally, as you know, we had to go to a replay of my interview with uh, Dr. Chandra Wickramasinghe, which, frankly, uh, you know, went up to number three on Talkstream. So someone was listening. Anyway, tonight is going to be an extraordinary show, but before we get into that, let me, let me finish up a couple things I started last night. Uh, we've lost two more very valued friends. Harlan Ellison died a few days ago, and over a month ago, Brad Steiger died. Um, let me talk about Brad first. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's graphic for July 1st, the uh, Tabby Star show... And then scroll down to my items and click on number two, the passing of Brad Steiger. Let me read you a couple things here from Paul Seaborn, who wrote a very important and very thoughtful obituary on Mysterious Universe. As someone who's worked in radio and as a writer, the passing this spring of two legends in those fields is a time for respect and reflection. Last month, the paranormal world lost broadcaster Art Bell. And today we learned of the passing of prolific paranormal author Brad Steiger. The Strange World of Brad Steiger, a syndicated newspaper column he wrote in the early 1970s, began in Fort Dodge, Iowa, on February 19, 1936. Born Eugene E. Olson, he was a typical Iowa farm boy until August of 1947, when a severe farm equipment accident gave him a near-death experience that altered the directions of his religion, his career ambitions, and his life. While he recovered physically, everything else seemed to have changed. In an interview with the Des Moines Register, Steiger gave an example. Among my earliest memories are the man and the woman who would walk into my bedroom at night and stand at my bedside looking down at me. Brad believed the couple was his great-grandparents who had lived in the same house. Steiger left the farm after college to teach English at a high school and then journalism and creative writing at Luther College, his alma mater. Fortunately for the world, he wrote in his spare time and published a biography of silent movie star Rudolf Valentino, and his interest in the paranormal drew him into the field and led to his first book contract, starting with Ghosts, Ghouls, and Other Peculiar People, published in 1965. When he quit teaching to write full-time, a woman gave him his pen name, which she said meant the one who guides others to higher awareness, possibly from the Dutch meaning of Steiger, which is scaffolding. Steiger always believed he was the one guided as well. He said, we are all spiritual beings. The paranormal is just part of the world we all share, but do not fully comprehend. 
Anyway, you can read the whole thing over on the other side of midnight. One thing I will say is in, um, I'm trying to remember the date. Um, it was a few years ago. Brad and Art did a book together called The Source, Journey Through the Unexplained, Old Testament Predictions, Out-of-Body Experiences, UFO Sightings, Government Conspiracies, and Ancient Astronauts. So you might want to go to a bookstore or peruse through Amazon or a used bookstore and try to find that one because it's, it's kind of, uh, we'll never have another word from either, either writer or author. Anyway, turning to um, the other friend of mine who's died, Harlan Ellison. I mean, Harlan and I crossed paths many, many, many years ago. And we crossed paths in the following way. If you go to my items, number one, Harlan Ellison wrote Star Trek's greatest episode. He hated it. <clears throat> There's a very interesting backstory of how Harlan wrote City on the Edge of Forever for Gene as a screenplay for one of the series of Star Trek, original show. And Gene took a look at it, and he said, at least he said to me, he said, there's no way I could have produced that. It would have cost, you know, millions. And back in those days, a Star Trek budget was 250000 about a quarter million bucks. Bought you a primetime show on NBC with special effects and spaceships and ray guns and, you know, the whole thing. Anyway, um... Harlan held this against uh, Gene for years. They had this feud going. Now, Harlan, as I was saying last night, he loved to inculcate feuds. He loved to start fights. You know, maybe it was, he figured, uh, who was it who said, I forget the author who said, you know, if you start a fight, people will show up. And Harlan, and I must say Gene, loved to have people show up. So they both had a kind of reason to keep this weird little fake feud going. They made up years later, and then they unmade up, and I mean, who cares? The point is that both were geniuses, and Harlan Ellison wrote the template for what I think, as you obviously know from reading my first book on Mars, is an extraordinary title, A City on the Edge of Forever. And because of what we'd found at Sidonia many decades ago, I adopted the, uh, the title. You can't really copyright titles. You can't copyright uh, titles because of a good reason. You know, it's, it's very hard to find out who was the first one with the title. Anyway, the point is I adopted it for uh, monuments. And it was uh, Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever. And then I got a call from Harlan Ellison, who was unhappy that I'd taken his title and applied it to my book. So I said, hold hold one. And I called Gene and I said, Gene, uh, Harlan doesn't like the idea that I've used. You know, he said, never mind. He says... I like it. If he doesn't like it, he says, I'll go sit on him. That was their relationship. So we've lost two remarkably important people in this field. Again, art being a third. And my sister, as I said last night, also in this time period is no longer with us, which is, um, it's sad. Anyway, turning to more interesting things. If you go to item number three, the Hawaiian volcano Kilauea is kicking up. It's just knocked out the GPS station on the rim, and it looks like if the crater keeps expanding, it could devour the museum. It's the museum on the, on the rim, the Volcano Museum, could literally fall into the crater. And the reason we're keeping an eye on Kilauea is because, as I've said on the show before, there's a whole bunch of interesting things going on around the Ring of Fire. 
as well as at 19.5 in the middle at uh, Kilauea. So I would keep an eye on that because I think that's part of a trend. I think if the physics model we've talked about so many times on this show is accurate, and it's going to come up again in tonight's conversation. I don't think my guest knows it yet, but it's going to come up in a very interesting way. Um, we should be on the lookout for changes in Hawaii and around the Pacific Rim. Which brings me to item number four. Have you noticed that the Japanese have done it again? They have sent a remarkable new unmanned spacecraft, literally in the paradigm, loaded for bear, because uh, we don't think they're going to find bears on what they're looking at, but it's loaded with all kinds of really cool instruments, including four landers, of which three are hopping rovers. I mean, this is really an amazing mission. Anyway, on Wednesday, if you go down now to number five, they arrived at their target, a little asteroid, it's only 3,000 feet or so across, called Ryugu, spelled R-Y-U-G-U in Japanese, which means in Japanese, Dragon Palace. And this, of course, is a mission to follow on Hibusa 1, uh, which went out to another asteroid, Ayatoka, I, I, I believe, Ayatoka several years ago and scooped up really tiny grains of material and brought it back and they were analyzed and very interesting results. Anyway, this mission is a follow-on. If you look at image, image, I'm sorry, link number six, this is a kind of a technical background on the spacecraft and it compares some, you know, engineering on the first one with Hayabusa 2 and some results from the first mission to this mission. Anyway, it's arrived on station, something like 12 and a half miles away from this little asteroid. And if you look at image, the image on link number five, this damn thing looks like um, a cube. It looks like, speaking of Star Trek, a Borg cube, a very, very, very eroded Borg cube. Or that, remember that buoy that they encountered? Uh, in one of the episodes, it was spinning and multicolored. Uh, it looks like that, except, of course, it isn't multicolored. It's very eroded. It has all kinds of interesting geometric objects on its surface that do not look like boulders. One cluster is 200-plus feet across, gauging by the diameter of this cube. Anyway, they're going to be taking close-up images doing magnetometer probes, doing thermal imaging, infrared spectrometry, lots of cameras. I mean, we're going to get all kinds of data on this object, which frankly, and I hope this doesn't, uh, you know, uh, predispose certain people in the audience to say, oh, I'm not going to listen anymore, because frankly, the damn thing looks artificial. It looks like an ancient, 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 very eroded spacecraft. Now, why do I say that? Because asteroids don't come as cubes. There's no logical reason why an asteroid should have a beautiful... And we know it's cubic because it's rotating in front of us every 7.6 hours. Which, by the way, is very fast for asteroids. So we may later this summer and this fall get more information. Or if the Japanese kind of freak out, a la Brookings, and take a look at their data and go, Oh, we can't talk about that yet. We may have an interesting blackout. So my final item tonight, before we get to my guest, and these are connected, 
As you know, several, several, several months ago in uh, October of 2017, yes, 2017, we had an object come through the solar system that turned out to be the first known detected interstellar object, meaning it came from beyond the Earth's gravity, Earth, the sun's gravitational field, more or less. It accelerated to a very high velocity as it made the turn around the sun and is now heading outward at a very high velocity in the direction of Pegasus. What makes it interesting, a la tonight, is it came from the direction of Lyra. It came from the direction within a few degrees of Vega, the brightest star in Lyra. And that presupposes all kinds of interesting things going back in terrestrial mythology and up to and including some of the symbology around the founding of the United States of America, as we discussed in terms of decoding the Great Seal a few weeks ago with Chris Knowles. Now, the most remarkable new thing that's happened with this object, which, by the way, was called in Hawaiian a muamua, which NASA says meaning meaning a first messenger from afar. And when Keith Laney went to the actual Hawaiian dictionary and looked it up, that does not what a muamua means. A muamua, translated directly from Hawaiian, means first battle scout of a war party. First battle scout of a war party, indicating, since NASA named it, that the folks at NASA think that that's what this, I mean, come on, are we being serious? So now remember the little history of Muamua, because it kind of fits into what we're going to talk about later tonight in terms of Tabby's star. First of all, Muamua came to us from the same direction as Tabby's star, give or take. And if you reel back the clock 300,000 years at its velocity as measured in interstellar space, I'm kind of wondering if proper motion would have moved Vega out of the way and would have placed its, uh, its uh, radiant, or the point from which it appears to emanate on the celestial sphere, as closer to Tabby than anyone has heretofore considered. I was having a discussion with a friend of mine this afternoon who we're going to talk about. His name is Bruce Gary, and he's done all kinds of interesting, really interesting photometric work on Tabby's star. And we both agreed that a lot of science proceeds because someone gets a crazy idea to look at something for the first time that nobody else looked at because they all assumed either it had been done before or if it had been done, it was trivial. There was no reason for them to do it because somebody else had done it. And if it was really interesting, it would have been published. Whereas the reality is that a lot of times new things are discovered because someone, some individual, some man or woman has an idea and decides, come hell or high water, to operate on that idea, to investigate that idea, to do the observations around that idea. And lo and behold, it turns out they're the first because nobody else thought to do it. That's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight with my guest. So uh, before we get there, let me tell you the last really interesting, remarkably developing interesting weirdness about Oumuamua. Not only did it come from the direction of Lyra, roughly perpendicular to the plane of the solar system, dive down under the plane, make a sharp hairpin turn around the sun because of gravity and is now heading in the direction of uh, Pegasus. But it appeared 
for a while in the model to be a comet. And then when all the telescopes on Earth were trained on it, you know, very rapidly because it was moving like a bat out of you nowhere and would never come back again, was high on a hyperbolic trajectory. So there was very limited time to get any decent observations with even the biggest telescopes, which all dropped what they were doing and looked and took photometric data and spectroscopic data and took photographs and all that. Well, it then made this left-hand turn around the sun and is going back out into interstellar space, never to return. And it has alternated in models between a comet and an asteroid. First, because it was assumed that it was a comet, because that's what's supposed to theoretically be hanging out in interstellar space and going through the solar system. If we have telescopes big enough to see them, there's supposed to be lots of these little guys that we're not detecting because they're just too small and too faint. The other thing is, but when the telescopes were brought to bear on a Muamua, the definition changed because the NASA people said, wait a minute, there's no gas, there's no dust, there's no coma, there's no tail, there's no nothing. It's just a spark of light in the biggest telescopes. Oh, it's got to be an asteroid. And then the spectroscopic data came in and it turned out to be a reddened asteroid and it varied in brightness as the telescopes watched and the photometers rolled. It varied over a period of seven and a half hours by a ratio of 10 to 1. In other words, it gets 10 times brighter, then it goes 10 times dimmer, 10 times brighter, 10 times dimmer. And it's not a regular fluctuating light curve from which the modelers went to work in their computers and came up with an object, a bizarre object, that, by the way, does not look like the object in um, link number seven in Radio with Pictures. That's been a kind of a cleaned up normal asteroid view. The original object, which you can see if you click on that link, is seen in the uh, attached video uh, of this story. And it shows it to be a long cigar or pencil shaped object, which could be 10 times longer than it is wide. Furthermore, it's not rotating smoothly. It is tumbling in all three axes, X, Y, and Z. Very important to remember. So we've got this unique object coming in from the interstellar space for the first time only. It's long and cigar-shaped. It's tumbling erratically. It makes a left-hand turn around the sun at something like 55-plus miles per second, which is really moving. That's 196,000 uh, miles an hour. 196, mm, very close to another number. Anyway, the the news of this week, somebody at NASA just published a new paper. In fact, a bunch of people have published a new paper where they've been monitoring this thing through what are called astro astrometric observations. Meaning they take a picture against background stars, take another picture a few days later, take another picture, other observatories take pictures. Everybody puts all these pictures and the stars together. And in a 3D computer model, you can actually precisely pin down with greater and greater accuracy, the more pictures you take over long periods of time, the actual three-dimensional trajectory of this object and how it's moving. And lo and behold, a muamua turns out as it made the turn around the sun, instead of going back out with exactly the same decreasing velocity as it came in with increasing velocity, something changed. And the comet 
the asteroid, the thing, the mystery, the enigma called a muamua, again coming from Lyra, is actually accelerating as it's leaving the solar system. It was going faster than it should under the gravity field at given distances, and this acceleration has been decreasing as it gets further and further from the sun. So the astronomers looking at this say, oh my God, it's it's a comet after all, because the only objects that astronomers know, except for spaceships, which accelerate under the impact, the impingement of you know sunlight, are comets where presumably in the model, gases, primarily water, turn from ice into vapor and they have a vapor pressure and they're jetted into space and action reaction. The jetting of the material off the comet results in an action on the comet and various comets over the last couple hundred years have been observed in exactly the same way, taking pictures and modeling orbits to accelerate due to what's called intrinsic interior jetting. Materials evaporated into space, causing action-reaction on the surface, nudging the comets in other directions, changing their orbits, their trajectories. The problem with this model, which NASA seems now to have kind of adopted to its bosom, is it has no data to support it. What we have, what was observationally observed, is an object behaving in a non-Newtonian, non-relativistic fashion. It's accelerating when it should be decelerating. And the only model they've got on the books that explains that, i.e. with Newtonian dynamics, is a comet model where comets evaporate and gases are ejected and that causes reaction thrust and that changes the orbit. The problem is, with the best telescopes in the world and off the world, i.e. Hubble, no matter how deep an image they took, how, in other words, how long the exposure, Oumuamua has remained a stark little point in the dark. Just one pixel, one little, little, little point. It has no coma. It has no tail. It shows no signs of outgassing. There's no dust around it. So the question then is, how do you have an invisible force acting on this body in a cometary way if the object doesn't behave in any other way as a comet. See, this goes back to my conversation with Bruce this afternoon where we talked about scientists who go cannot think outside the box. They're stuck in the box. The only thing astronomers know that whip around the sun are comets. Well, the data, the empirical observational data says, A, it can't be a comet because there's no dust, no gas, no nothing. But it behaves like a comet, meaning it's moving non-Newtonianly. that a word? Okay. There's another possibility, which brings us elegantly to the physics we're going to talk about in part tonight. If you look at link number eight, there is a graphic depiction of a classic experiment that my friend Bruce De Palma, physicist Bruce De Palma, conducted after he left MIT back in the 1970s. It's called the spinning ball experiment. What De Palma did was to mount into a little spring ejector cup um, a steel pinball. And the cup was motorized, so it spun the ball up to 27,000 RPM. 27,000 revolutions per minute. And then he 
had two cups, one rotating, one not rotating. And he ejected two pin bowls, two steel pin bowls, about an inch across, simultaneously, and photographed them with a strobe light set up against a gridded screen. And what he discovered and had been up to in the day of his death in 1991, I think, uh, uh, Bruce died, he tried to get the physics community, the astronomical community, to pay attention to the fact that spinning objects with high angular momentum that are not only spinning but processing in a gravitational field move differently. I mean, really, really differently. Look at those graphs. Look at that graph. The trajectories of these two objects, one not spinning, the other spinning like a bat out of you know where, are radically different in the terrestrial gravity field. And Bruce took decades trying to figure out what his, exper his empirical experiment had actually proven. Besides the idea that rotating objects move differently in a gravity field than Newton would predict. Or, since relativity is based on Newtonian dynamics, relativity would predict. None of this observed behavior is predicted by Newtonian or relativistic physics. But that, bottom line, everybody, that's exactly what I think is really going on with the Muamua. Remember, it's rotating in three axes. It's undergoing precession, which is a higher order rotation. Processing rotating objects on Earth with high RPM, small objects, high RPM, high angular momentum, they behave demonstrably differently in a gravity field than non-rotating objects or uniformly rotating objects around only one axis. And this, I think, is the secret. Now, does that discount the idea that a Muamua could be an ancient spaceship? No. But I think it explains why it's not a comet and no object we've seen in space ever is 10 to 1 in aspect ratio and no object has exhibited because they just don't exist uh, the kind of incredibly weird celestial mechanics that we're seeing unless they are comets. So I think tonight we've got an example right in front of us of an explanation of something so bizarre so exquisitely interesting that it belongs up there along with uh, John Anderson's uh, anomalous pioneer effect. Remember, astronomers have been watching spacecraft for years, several spacecraft that are exhibiting very anomalous behavior as they fly by planets or leave the sun. And why are they exhibiting this behavior? Because in these spacecraft are little rotating systems in a larger rotating system, Pioneer, the whole damn thing, is rotating and processing. So its behavior in a gravity field is different. Now, there are physicists who claim that it's due to thermal radiative uh, energy losses being uh, changing the trajectory from the nuclear onboard power source. But John, who was the discoverer, John Anderson at JPL, who discovered this effect, looking at the trajectories of the Pioneer spacecraft, he mightily contests those conclusions, and he says because based on other spacecraft motions he's observed and his colleagues, there is something unusual that is not going on uh, modeled by normal Newtonian or relativistic mechanics. Anyway, um, we'll leave it there. There's one final item, the Saturn, Moon, Enceladus, NASA, 
is now announced has complex organic spewing out, which means there are organic molecules, which means there could be either the forming of life on Enceladus or the destruction of life and that we're seeing the uh, breakdown of complex organics. That opens the door in the same way that the curiosity results of the seasonal methane announced by NASA just a few weeks ago opens the door to the discovery of potential life in outer space. And with that idea, the whole idea that Tabby's star, the central actor of what we're going to talk about tonight, could in fact be some kind of um, artificial construct orbiting this otherwise completely normal F-type star 1,400 light years away, that is going to come into its own when we introduce my guest after this break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the Kinthea, our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. 
Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now... Back to the show. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. I kind of thought this music was appropriate tonight. This, remember, is the official NASA album called Methodia, which was written by Vangelis and played at a very important uh, ancient Greek temple live the night that the Mars Odyssey spacecraft went into orbit around the red planet. I mean, you don't think that NASA is trying to tell us something, maybe, maybe? Anyway, their confused reaction to Oumuamua and the fact that it came from the direction of Lyra, came from the direction of Vega, came from the direction of Tabby's star, opens up all kinds of very interesting questions, which we're going to ask our guests tonight. So let me read you what I've got, and we're going to obviously go much deeper because I think Gary is a much more interesting person than this little, you know, thumbnail sketch indicates. We're going to find that out. I mean, you don't become a citizen scientist who thinks outside the box just by accident. Gary Sacco is a senior-level executive currently working with a large global technology company. They won't tell us which one. He's been more than 25 years working in the cybersecurity industry, and when not doing that, he enjoys spending time with his family, and his hobbies include astronomy, gosh, what a surprise, flying airplanes, we'll find out why and what, snow skiing, 
the beach, and scuba diving. Gary is the author to an astronomy paper, one of them, that recently was published in June of this year, 2018, as part of a science journal, the Journal of the American Association of Variable Stars Observer, the J-A-A-V-S-O. Now, the reason this journal published this paper is because Gary has been looking at the periodicities, or more accurately, the ostentatious lack of some of Tabby's star. And we're going to start at the very beginning. So let me bring on Gary. Gary Sacco, you're on the other side of midnight. Welcome. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Richard. Glad to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me uh, to talk about that paper, uh, which I think is a, a very important development regarding um, what has been called the most mis- mysterious stars in the, in the galaxy. In fact, um, you know, the publication of that paper is so fresh that I, I literally <laughs> just today received in the mail the paperback version of that uh, of that published paper from the journal. So I, I quite literally have it in my lap now, hot off the scientific presses, mm, if you will. That must be so thrilling. I mean, how does it feel as, as a civilian, as a citizen scientist, to be published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal and everybody up to and including Dr. Boyjan, who found Tabby Star as part of this Planet Hunters team we're going to talk about, everybody's going to be looking and reading about this paper. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been interesting. Uh, it's quite a ride. I'd love to share that story with you. Uh, you know, Do- Dr. Boyajian uh, helped quite a bit during the ride there. She, she really was uh, one of the earliest believers in, um, you know, what I had found, whether we say I kind of tripped into it or actually found I spent a lot of time thinking about it and, and working through some of the models. But she was one of the very, very first people to actually believe in it and she provided a lot of data and support and guidance along the way to get it published okay let's hit it on the head your bio is not very much biographical who is gary sacco and let me start off by asking you're not related perchance to sacco of the famous sacco vanzetti trial in the 1920s uh, I am actually. You're yeah. kidding. You are. No, I am. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's right. Well, tell people what that because I'm sure that all the millennials will listen and say, Sacco Vanzetti, who are they? That, <laughs> you know, is, is that a rock band? Is, did Mick Jagger, you know, run with them? Yeah. I mean, so I know as much as anyone else who reads the story in, in the history books, I don't have any inside knowledge about it because it's, it is quite a few generations of go at this point but essentially these are two people who were uh wrongfully persecuted for committing crimes that they hadn't done because of their ethnic background and were ultimately um uh you know killed essentially were um these these, uh, were, these were political assassinations under the guise of, of, of justice right right yeah they're found guilty and then uh, executed so being a rebel runs in your family <laughs> I'm well I, I i'm yeah i mean uh i don't i don't i, I don't know if i'm being rebel uh, being a rebel or not but um and i don't know if they were being a rebel either to be honest with you uh but it's an interesting story yeah okay so to gary um you've been working in cybersecurity forever 
when growing up, did you did you gravitate toward computers or the sciences, or did you take clocks apart and put them back together, except for this or that? Or, I mean, what got you into cybersecurity? <sighs> yeah, uh, you know, it's 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 like so many things. You don't know where ultimately your path takes you. Mm. Um, I, you know, I was working with um, one company at one point and there was just a demand for it because it was an emerging reality. And it's, you know, 25 years ago, if you think about it, cybersecurity was not a thing. Um, along the way, you know, it became a thing. And um, I had some, you know, I had some background in it through, through college and through personal use. And so my employer you know, tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to help. Um, and so I was doing things like, you know, imaging hard drives, um, look, trying essentially looking for bad guys within the company. Oh, uh, oh, just, yeah, like, so, just, just like Musk was yeah. talking about the other day in that email. Yeah, yeah, did, yeah, exactly. Did you, did you follow that bizarre story? Yeah. Someone's been yeah, hacking him from inside, apparently, and yeah. outside the company. So your field is to keep the bad guys out and to find the bad guys in and kick them out. The field, yeah, that's right. I mean, for me specifically, uh, my team uh, helps our um, our clients uh, reduce risk of being you know, attacked or having data lost, right? So... Um, well, we here we know nothing about that. I mean, we've never <laughs> had a problem. God, gosh, that we would ever have anybody attack this show. I mean, seriously, is there anything that you know, unless you're the CIA, you can do to protect yourself anymore? Uh, you know, sadly, not. I mean, it's only going to get worse too as oh time goes God. on. Um, I mean, there's not a whole. I mean, there, there's some basic do's and don'ts, right? I mean, we all. Well, 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 I thought the quantum computers, and there's been some really yeah. amazing um, developments on that side. They're going to be commercial probably yeah. the next what two or three years. I thought that once we got to that level, the coding could be so incredibly complex that it would take the life of the universe to figure it out by brute force. Yeah, it's going to change things. It's going to. Ch I mean, today we we rely on encryption to protect data at rest or in transit. Tomorrow, when quantum computers are available, they will be able to uh, break our our today's encryption algorithms relatively quickly. Okay, but turn the equation around. Aren't they in and of themselves almost impregnable? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So um, there's there's a separate um, a separate uh, thread around quantum cryptography that can, in theory, uh, prevent, and is, this, this would be almost impossible to break, would, would prevent someone from being able to, to, to view, uh, say, an encrypt, a message going from one person to another without the other person finding out. So there's, um, there's a way in which uh, a message that is encrypted through so through a quantum cryptography to have it so that if it is intercepted and observed, that uh, essentially breaks it, it breaks that encryption. You know, we probably should do a whole show on this alone because everybody has a computer. They're listening to our show on the computer, a lot of them. There's, there's live radio, but there's also, you know, computers. Lots of them around the world. 
And computer issues are more and more, I mean, look at what the Russians did to us and the coming election and all. I mean, there's a huge discussion about the safety of our electoral system. And frankly, from what I know, and you're going to scare the hell out of me when I say this, we don't have any security in terms of elect, uh, elections anymore. <laughs> he laughed. That's right. He laughed. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, they're, they're in, yeah, so I mean, you're right. We could probably talk for a long time about, um, you know, how politics is you know, involved today and using social media, et cetera. But that's, um, uh, you're right. I think you could probably talk for weeks on that topic. Yeah. Okay. So let's put that aside because that's the other side of Gary we want to talk about sometime. Let, <laughs> let me let me move now. You know, for a guy who's into being, you know, a spook and a cop and a, you know, security guy and all that, how the hell did you get interested in the in the you know amazing science of astronomy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Only one reason. I mean, the only reason why I was at all interested in getting into astronomy as a hobby was because of the star, Tabby Star. Really? That's it. That was the only reason. You're you're a virgin. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So what what grabbed you? I mean, if you're not – because, look, who can go outside in the nighttime? Of course, you're in Miami. You don't really have uh, cloud-free nights down there. But uh, you go outside. You look at the stars. You mean nothing ever said – I got no more. No, no, no. Of course, of course. No, I was always, you know, I have, I have a science background. Uh, that was my major in college. So, um, very interested in, you know, the uh, one of my favorite books of all time, Carl Sagan's Contact. Right, mm. the movie was great. Well, it was great. Lo- love the stuff. And, and so, what got me interested, in fact, in the star when it hit the news was this just the idea that potentially we may have uh, you know finally found some way of showing evidence that we're not alone did you find it as weird as i do <clears throat> that for the first time when tabby was brought up the whole idea of super civilizations you know extraterrestrial intelligence uh life beyond the earth all of this suddenly became a serious part of the discussion as opposed to a giggle line at the end of the evening news. Didn't you find that weird? I mean, positively weird? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, inside the circles, you know, as I was working on some of this work and sharing it with others that were in astronomy as a profession, it's almost taboo to talk about it. But it absolutely pushed out into mainstream media um you know this idea that you know we may be looking at something that is very unique i mean astronomy may have finally brought us to the point we've kind of been waiting for this day where it's advanced enough that we're going to start peering deeper and deeper into space and we're going to start seeing things if if we're not alone Eventually, we're going to see some telltale signs. Now, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet, but maybe this was it, right? And that's kind of what really raised a lot of eyebrows is maybe this is the this is what we've been kind of hoping we'd find and see. Um, so I think that story is, is yet to play out, but it is really interesting. And, it, and I, I like to say that 
you know, all this work that I've done around this and, and this paper that, you know, I know we're going to, we're going to talk about is either going to be, um, an interesting footnote in a star that was ultimately about dust in orbit mm-hmm. or it's going to, or it's going to be the Magna Carta. <laughs> Um, I have a feeling it's going to be the latter, and I've got some specific data I'm going to share with you that you don't know about yet, because you asked a question at the end of your paper, and I think I may have the answer for you. So we'll find that out in a couple of hours. So let's back up. We've got you know a little less than 50 minutes to the top of the hour. Let's talk about Tabby and how it was found, what found it, the organization, this Planet Hunters thing, the role of Dr. Boyjan in it, and, and kind of what got you intrigued to get involved in something that really was not your your uh, cup of tea yeah so um yeah we so it started back in 2009 when nasa launched the kepler space telescope uh and this telescope's purpose was really only to find planets planets outside our solar system and the way it did that was it would look at one part of the sky for, well, in this case, four straight years. Look at the same stars for four straight years. With, and a, taking with, a, far, with a set of yeah. cameras. Like I think there's with, 42, ex- 42 cameras, ex- 42 uh, you know, imaging yeah. detectors. Yeah, and it would take a snapshot of a photograph. It would take one single photograph every 30 minutes. Hmm. So for th- every 30 minutes for four years, it looked at the same stars. Well, Tabby's star was one out of 150,000 of those stars that was photographed for four straight years. Um, so what happened is this, this because of so many stars and because of so many images, NASA had to have some pretty sophisticated software to be able to sort through all that data and and, and try to identify where it saw a planet transit. So when a planet crosses in front of its host star, one of these 150,000 stars, the, the light from that star dims just a little bit. So, I, I've so, heard numbers like if, if, if we were looking at the solar system at the same distance of Tabby and Jupiter passed in front of the, you know, the sun, it would dim the light by what half a percent. I think it's a really tiny, tiny fraction. That's exactly right. Yeah, about 0.5 percent, tiny, tiny amount. It would drop. But the detection um, equipment is so sensitive and so reliable that half a percent is a huge amount, actually. Yeah, I mean it's a big, it's a, it's a giant planet. In this case, if it was a Jupiter planet, a sized planet, it would it'd be gigantic crossing in front of its star, and it's still only dimming about 0.5%. Okay, now, hang, right. hang on. So, for comparison, what did Tabby do that set every astronomer's hair on fire? Okay, two things. One, the, the largest of the dips that crossed in front of the star were upwards of 20%. What? How yeah, big so man- a damn planet do you have to have? If Jupiter would be half a percent, how big an object would you have to have eclipsing the background star to give you a dip of 20%? Yeah, so that's what got everyone really interested. But before they got interested, the, the size of that drop is so big that the NASA software, the, the software 
looking at all this data, oh. threw, threw it out. It just discarded the data. Garbage in, a- garbage out. It, it was not programmed to see something. A human being was required. Yeah, well, it just it just figured it was looking for planets, not something like that. And so it was looking. It basically would say, "Oh, that's got to be an electronic glitch or something." Yeah, or if a star is very young or very old, it could be doing weird things. Like if it's very young, planet forming, it could be a lot of debris in the in, in orbit, which would cause you know larger dips like that. And mm. that's not what Kepler was designed to do. Okay. So it it threw out that data. Um, the thing about Tabby star is it's not very young. It's not very old. It's an average age star. It's a main it's called maintenance sequence star, uh, and it's an F class, which means it's a little bit bigger than our sun. Um, yeah, so it's very a little hotter surface temperature, but it's, know, but it's, it's but it's a, it, it's a solar type star. Yeah, it's it's an it's an ordinary star. It's an and and it, this is where you know astrophysicists have looked at the star uh, in ways that. <laughs> would make your head spin, but they've looked at this star and they've come back again and again and said, this is a normal, ordinary star. They, they can see by its, you know, the, the speed of its rotation and just a number of different ways of its, um, you know, that they looked at the spectra to say that this is just a normal star and it should not have debris around it. Um, and it's not too old to be fluctuating in, in its flux the way you wouldn't expect. So, Planet Hunters is a group of citizen scientists who, and anyone could join Planet Hunters. Your audience could join Planet Hunters today. Uh, and you essentially go to a website and you help to review some of this thrown out data that, that the ah. software has thrown away. And you look at the thrown out data and try to determine if, if, if this is really a, a, a transit or not. And so a bunch of uh, more, more than just a few people who were a part of Planet Hunters came across this star and the thrown out data and said, this is really strange. It looks real. And NASA went back and looked at the software, looked at the images and came back and said, yeah, it is real. Uh, this is this, this is not an anomaly. And so that began the story. Well, the main way they did this is if you're looking at 150,000 other stars, if it was something to do with the cameras, the spacecraft, the telemetry, whatever, it would affect all the stars, but only Tabby exhibited out of all that hundred thousand right. plus stars this weird, 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 weird set of eclipses or whatever they are. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, you're right. So this is the only star acting like this. All of the check stars nearby this particular star in that frame uh, were not acting like this. So it's clearly something specific to to the star. So. Uh, you know, Doctor Boyajian, um, you know, looked at the, the you know, wrote wrote this paper called WTF? Where's the flux? <laughs> right. More code. Uh, yeah. And then what really made the headlines was um, um, an astrophysicist uh, from Penn State University, Doctor Jason Wright, um, made a made a mention that this light curve that was exhibited here. Um, by Kepler is something you might expect to see uh, of uh, if we were to see a light curve of a, of a megastructure, an alien megastructure. Now, now wait, wait, wait. Um, there, there had been a yeah. couple of papers published, one by, I think, a French astronomer a few years before, mm-hmm. who basically modeled what, what an intelligent 
set of Venetian blinds orbiting a distant star would look like in terms of deliberate kind of Morse code messaging. And Wright, I think, was looking at that paper. I forget the name of the French astronomer. Um, but he was looking at that paper and he was thinking, wait a minute, the only thing you've ever seen that kind of looks like uh, this guy's idea is the tabby light curve. Is that is that correct? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know specifically the paper you're referring to, but oh. um, I do know, right? I do know that, it, yeah, I mean, that he, that he, you know, has been quoted as saying that this is something that might be looked at as uh, the light curve is so strange that this is something we might expect to see if we were to see a light curve of an alien megastructure. Now that said. Um, now, when you say it, megastructure, yeah. mega means mega million or big. Structure is yeah. obvious. So, so the idea going back to papers coming out of the 1960s, a guy named Kardashev, a guy named Dyson. Kardashev was a Russian. Dyson was an American. They wrote about what an ET civilization would look like if it modified its solar system in some interesting way. And yeah. you could only see the light curve or the infrared or some kind of energy emission. And this this thing, Tabby Star, is looking a lot like their prediction of what big guys would build on a big scale in a distant solar system. Right? I think at the time, yeah. I mean, it certainly looked like the stereo – I mean, it looked like what it could be, right? And that's what got the headlines and that's what got interesting. Um you know, but as as you know, the story evolved, I think it got far more complex than that, um, as, as everyone expected. And, and everyone, I think even Dr. Wright would have first said that he's saying that he, he made that comment is, uh, you know, almost as this is, this is one of the possibilities. I mean, it's been very clear that this is just one of the possibilities. It could be lots of other things. But the interesting thing is all of those, many of those other natural explanations that are on a long list of things that could be have one by one slowly come off the table. Meaning, um, the one meaning, that, meaning that the data does not support these other natural models. Exactly. So one of the natural models was this idea of, you know, interstellar medium dust. So dust between Tabby star and earth somewhere in the void, somewhere in the middle, there's a cloud of dust. that's just crossing between us. Uh, there's always been a couple of problems in my mind with that model. One, I'll tell you what, what you'd hold, expect. Hold it yeah, there because sure. we're at the top of the hour, and I don't want to short sure. change. This is really interesting. I mean, we're talking, everyone, <clears throat> the first mainstream agreed-upon consensus idea that an object that modern astronomy has discovered, that NASA discovered with Kepler, could in fact be the first known predictable extraterrestrial set of things built around another star by ET intelligence. I mean, that's that's not trivial. We'll get back to Gary, my friend this morning, Gary Sacco, my guest and uh, amateur astronomer graduated to citizen scientist. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Helgland. We shall return.
I want to talk to you in the audience around the planet tonight. I want to talk to you about the kind of meta objectives of the Enterprise Mission and the Other Side of Midnight, this radio show that you're listening to right now. As you know, we have sponsored a number of important research projects through this show over the last couple, three years. We've raised money for electrogravitics, for M-Drive research. Um, we're looking very hard now at this whole orgone accumulator technology. And I want to use the Accutron, this inertial sensor, which I developed following the lead of Bruce De Palma many, many decades ago, to put the Accutron in an orgone situation, in the accumulator or in an orgone blanket, these multi-layered uh, concoctions that somehow seem to trap or densify the ether. And yes, ether is real. There is a physics of the ether. And the problem is that it all costs money. It all costs funds. So we've added a new wrinkle to the Other Side of Midnight website. Over on the left-hand side, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, and just look over on the left, you'll see under the uh, banners which say things like home, tonight show, there's a donate button. And there's also some donate buttons in the middle of the page if you uh, happen to get the right show. But mainly over on the left, it says donate now. Normally, I don't like asking folks for money. But money is energy. Money is the ability in this culture to do things, to accomplish things. There is a huge need and necessity for a game changer. We need to bring humanity back together to realize its commonality and not its differences. And that's in part what this show is trying to do with a variety of programs. And part of our research effort is trying to do with a variety of, of uh, projects there. So if you have some spare change, if you have more than spare change, go to that button, go to the left-hand donate now button and click on it and send us what you can spare because Communication in the 21st century costs. Everything costs, but communication more than anything costs because you have transmitters and internet connections and bright people and complexity of computers. Oh my God, complexity of computers. It all ultimately has to be paid for somehow. And as you know, you can also join Club 19.5. That's an easy way to support the show because then you get archives, you get seminars. You get this thing we're going to be doing in the next few weeks on how to look at these images. And um, there are ways you can look that will give you insights to what you're seeing that will not be found uh, on NBC or CBS or ABC. So again, go to the left-hand side of tonight's show page or the guest page. Click on the donate button and send us what you can spare because believe me, every dollar helps. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. 
You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>